Today's reading is Psalm 119, uh, chapters 1 to 24. It's the NIV version. Blessed are those whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are those who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do no wrong but follow his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I lean, as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can, a, how can a young person stay on the path of purity? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips, I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect your word. Be good to your servant while I live, that I may obey your word. Open my eyes, that I may see the wonderful things in your law. I am a stranger on earth. Do not hide your commands from me. My soul is consumed with longing for your laws at all times. You rebuke the arrogant who are accused, those who stray from your commands. Remove me from their scorn and contempt, for I keep your statutes. Though rulers sit together and slander me, your servant will meditate on your decrees. Your statutes are my delight. They are my counsellors. This is the word of our Lord. So in the musical adaptation of Victor Hugo's Les Mis, there's a famous scene where Valjean uh, spares Javert's life. For those of you that don't know the story, Jean Valjean is a convict who has an experience of grace, and in, after that experience, he breaks parole and decides to create a new life on the basis of this new way of living that he has encountered. And Inspector Javert is this policeman that has pursued him across the course of the narrative. And finally, Jean Valjean has the upper hand. He has the opportunity to kill Javert, and he spares his life. And Javert 
simply cannot take this. He cannot understand it. And it's interesting. After Jean Valjean receives grace from this bishop early on in the story, he sings. Um, and the song that he uses there, the music is identical to the music that Javert uses after his experience of grace at Jean Valjean's hands. But unlike Jean Valjean, who can take on this new identity and live from it, Javert cannot handle it. And And his lyrics are very different. He says, I'm the law and the law is not mocked. I'll spit his pity back into his face. Um, it is either Valjean or Javert. He cannot see that there is any room for his way of living and Jean Valjean's way of living. There is nothing on earth that we share, he says. It is either Valjean or Javert. Now, at least in the musical version of the play, Valjean and Javert are figures of law and grace. Valjean represents grace, Javert represents the law, and I actually think that the musical gets it wrong. There is nothing on earth that we share, really? If we're true to the scriptures, that doesn't seem to be true. It seems that law and grace fit together in a far more complex way than that. And this morning, as you've already heard read to you, we're going to be looking at Psalm 119, a psalm in which the psalmist is taking the utmost delight in God's law, or what we'll come to see, God's instruction. Now, the Psalms are a unique book. Um, It's actually five books, which we've collected together into one. And there are other things like the Psalms in the Scriptures, uh, hymns, you think of Miriam's hymn after they crossed the Red Sea in the Exodus. But the Psalms... The entire direction of speech right throughout the book is from the psalmist to God, or from us to God. And so their presence in our Bible, their presence in the canon, for us as those that have a high view of Scripture, means that these are divinely sanctioned ways of talking to God. And so it makes it even more problematic for us as Christians because we really struggle with the concept of the law. And yet here is a psalmist delighting in the law, and do we... Do we just have to skip over it? Do we go from Psalm 118 to Psalm 120? If not, what do we do? How do we as Christians delight in God's law? What would that mean? Well, why don't you join with me in prayer and we'll see what the psalm can teach us this morning. Father, as we come to look at this topic, difficult and complex, we pray that you would give us wisdom, that you would give us ears to hear what your word might be saying to us, that you would give us hearts to understand, and that we might try, Lord, to grasp how these things hold together for us as Christians so that we would understand a little more clearly what it means to live in the grace of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, Psalm 119 is huge. It's the biggest psalm by far in all of the Psalter, and it's an acrostic poem. So, there are stanzas of eight verses, and each one of those eight verses has, as the beginning of each line, the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet. So, the first eight lines start with Aleph, or A, 
Then the next eight lines start with bet, right the way through the Hebrew alphabet. So it's an interesting psalm. And each of these stanzas, each of these sections of eight lines are relatively independent. Um, But what's really interesting is that right throughout the psalm, there is almost every way of talking to God that you find in the Psalter as a whole. There is praise. There is trust. There is uh, joy in the law. There is complaint. There is lament. Every single way that you see in the broader Psalter of speaking to God is contained in this Psalm 119. And I don't think that's accidental. I think there's something about the fact that it has A to Z as its structure. It is a way of saying, I think, that this psalm in itself contains, as a microcosm, if you will, everything that you see in the psalms as a whole. And that you can see in the details of the text as well. Verse 1, blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the way of the Lord. Does that ring any bells? Psalm, psalm 1, verse 1. The way, the walking, it's, it's deliberately echoing the introduction to the Psalter. The introduction which functions as uh, that which contains, again in itself, something of what the rest of the Psalter is going to be about. And Psalm 119 puts that at verse 1 of A and goes right through to Z. So, as Christians, we simply cannot ignore this Psalm. And What is unique about Psalm 119 is that it takes all these forms and the one thing that it has in common the whole way through them is that it is dealing with God's law. Now, law may not be the best way of translating the Hebrew word that is used there. The word is Torah, instruction, and the Jewish people use that to refer to the first five books of the Bible as a whole, from Genesis through to Deuteronomy. And so the Torah contains everything from the creation of the world right through to the election of the Jewish people in Abraham, their time in Egypt, their exodus from Egypt, the giving of the law itself, as as we often know it, right up to the point where they're about to enter the promised land. And so the Torah is first and foremost a story. And it's first and foremost a story about a God who first of all elects the people and enters into relationship with them and only secondarily then gives them instructions for the way that he wants them to live in light of his gracious election. Even in the Old Testament, grace precedes the law. There's far more connection between the Torah and what we know in the New Testament than we often hear. Now, in, uh, in this first eight verses of Psalm 119, there's a structure. The first four verses make statements about God's law, and the next four verses, uh, in the next four verses, the psalmist applies those to his life. So let's keep reading. Um, <clears throat> Blessed are those, in verse 2, who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. What's interesting here is blessed is probably better translated happy. This isn't a supernatural intervention. This is the psalmist saying that those that follow God's law have a life that is lived in harmony with the structures of the world and therefore gets the blessing and the happiness of doing so. 
You see, the Christian, uh, as Christians, we talk about creation, and we talk about God's creating the world, and we, we say certain things about it. It's called the doctrine of creation. And there's a whole bunch of stuff that's packaged up in there, but the thing that's important for us this morning is when we say that God created the world as Christians, we say that he did that in absolute freedom. There was nothing that compelled him to do it. There were no constraints placed upon him as he did it. There was no pre-existing matter that he worked with. And therefore, he was able to create the world in a way that without any fettering, without any hindrance, reflected his character and reflected the way that he foresaw life, that he wanted life to take place. Now, that's one of the reasons why the problem of evil is so difficult for us as Christians. But for us this morning, what we have to see is that God's law, God's instructions are not arbitrary. In the same way that his particular commandments flow from his character, so too does the general structure of the universe. And those two things don't exist separately. So what the psalmist is saying here, in a sense, is in the broad sense of Torah, which encompasses creation, is that I delight in the way that you made things in this world because it brings me blessing when I live in line with it. In the structures of creation and in your general commandments. So there is a naturalness, if you will, to what the the psalmist is talking about here. And we also see in verse 2 that there is uh, an interrelationship between outward actions and the heart. Blessed are those who keep his testimonies, who seek him with their whole heart. The kind of obedience the psalmist is talking about is not the caricature of the Pharisee that we see in the New Testament, but it is an internal and an external reality. Um, <clears throat> verse 3 echoes the same thing. You, you also do no wrong, but walk in his ways. And in verse 4, we see, again, that it's not just the general structures of creation, but it's God's commandments specifically. You have commanded your precepts to be kept diligently. So there is God's commandments. There is creation in here. They're the statements at the first, the first half of this stanza, as you will. Then the psalmist moves on to personal application. He says... Oh, that my ways may be steadfast in keeping your statutes. A wish. He moves on in verse 6. Then I shall not be put to shame, having my eyes fixed on all your commandments. Shame in this uh, context is being publicly seen to have committed your way in the wrong way in front of the community. He's saying, if I, if I follow your ways, God, I will not be put to shame in front of the community the choices that I made in life will be vindicated. In verse 7, I will praise you with an upright heart when I learn your righteous rules. And then in verse 8, finally, he moves from the wish in verse 5 to the active commitment. I will keep your statutes. Do not utterly forsake me. Now that's an interesting one. There's a concrete commitment finally at the end of the verse from verse 5, the wish to saying, yes, I'll put this into action. But then there's this ambiguous bit. Do not abandon me. After all that expression of confidence, what is that doing there? Well, we'll see, I think, part of what that's doing in a minute. But the first thing that I want us to realize is this. I woke up this morning 
which is going to come as a shock to everyone, I'm sure. I woke up this morning. I dressed. I had breakfast. I got in the car. And I came to church, right? I know, it's all right. Shocking. But in every one of those things, every single one of the actions that I took after waking up was moral. I put on particular clothes, which I'd bought before, which had a particular relationship with producers in the world around me. I ate particular food, which I had already bought, but again, um, the milk I drank came from particular producers. I bought it at a particular price. The, the other things that I ate, it was similar to that. I got in a car and poured carbon into the atmosphere because, well, I've kind of got to be pragmatic. But God created the world. He created the world in a particular way, and he gave us the gift of agency, the gift of will. And as much as we'd sometimes like to, we, can, we can't give that back. Even trying to give that back is already a moral action. And so one thing that Psalm 119 draws our attention to with, with blinding clarity so that we can't turn, turn our heads away from it is that it doesn't matter whether we're living in the Old Testament times or we're living on the other side of Jesus' coming, we are still agents in creation whose actions always have moral import. But most of us probably don't experience that as particularly good news. Most of us probably can't delight just on that basis in God's commandments in the way creation was made. And I think part of that, part of that is simply that we like to do our own thing. But there's more to it than that. And the psalm, I think, shows us a little bit of what that ambiguity in verse 8 and that hesitation in our own hearts is about. I'm going to move on to uh, the third stanza, Gimel, so from verse 17. And here we see that there is an ambiguity, there is a hiddenness that accompanies God's law, that accompanies the way that he made creation. So it starts like this, deal bountifully with your servant that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes that I may behold the wondrous things out of your law. I am a sojourner on the earth. Hide not your commandments from me. And we see in verse 21, uh, sorry, in verse 22, take away from me scorn and contempt, for I have kept your testimonies. Verse 23, even though princes sit plotting against me, your servant will meditate on your statutes. So in the first eight verses, we see that the, the overriding message is that those who follow God's Torah are blessed. And here, we see that those who follow God's Torah are vulnerable. And Why? Open my eyes that I, may behold, uh, be, uh, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Hide not your commandments from me. Why can the law be hidden? Part of it is sinfulness. 
Part of it is that we harden our own hearts and we're capable of astonishing acts of self-deception. But part of it is that we're creatures. We don't stand outside of creation and look in, able to dissect it. We are always already a part of it. And we see only a very small fraction of what is there. And so we need God's revelation to be able to understand what it is to live in uh, harmony with the way that He created the world. And so the psalmist is vulnerable, first of all, because he is utterly reliant on God's revelation. And I think he's aware of his sinfulness and the jeopardy that that causes in that relationship. So it's hidden from him, and he's dependent on a relationship which is tenuous because of his sin. But then, as we saw in verse 22, other people are causing him shame, are plotting against him, because that dynamic of hiddenness, when it isn't joined to the recognition that we need God's revelation to understand how to live in the world, is blindness. And there are a whole bunch of people in the world that live in a very different way, that don't want to be even reminded or, uh, or shown or challenged that there might be another way, who are inconvenienced by those who try and live in God's way, and they want to do something about it. The people in power, the princes are plotting. And so this hiddenness of the law is, if you like, doubly dangerous. It's dangerous because we might lose sight of it, or the psalmist might lose sight of it. And it's dangerous because there are others in this world who are blind to the ways of God. And for those that try and follow God's way, it puts them in peril. And so, what does a psalmist do? Well, here, in, in, in the third stanza, in the stanza starting with the Hebrew letter Gimel, he trusts. He has an expression of trust in God's will. Now, it's important to understand that when you read the Psalms or Proverbs or any of the wisdom literature, they're designed to be read together. Proverbs says, raise a child in the way of the Lord and he won't depart from it. Job says, I'm a righteous man and I'm suffering anyway. Ecclesiastes says, it doesn't really matter what you do. And the Psalms kind of are a mix of all of that. And all of that ambiguity is here in Psalm 119 because it's so broad in scope. Yes, there's a sense in which God creates regular patterns in the world and if you follow them, you'll have happiness in your life. But there's a hiddenness to God's revelation, which means that even if you try and follow that, sometimes you won't even achieve that. You'll have the opposite. You'll be persecuted. And sometimes it'll seem meaningless. It's all blended together here, and wonderfully so, I think. Now, I mean, we don't have to think terribly hard of, of stories where people follow Jesus and suffer for it rather than experience blessing as we might expect them to. But I'm not interested in those grandiose stories today. I think each of us has probably experienced that in our own lives. Um, as I said uh, this morning, um, I'm coming to the end of my studies, something I believe that God wanted me to do. 
and I've got a family that depends on my ability to earn an income, and I have no idea what's next. And not only do I have no idea what next, what, what is next, but I believe that I was following what God wanted me to do, but I don't know it. It might be that I just took my family on a, a fairly expensive four-year detour from what I'm meant to be doing in life, because there is that hiddenness, even in God's particular commands to our lives. And so we live in that ambiguity, and I'm sure each one of you will be able to point to things in your own life where there, there is that same uncertainty. So <clears throat> what do we do with it? How do we move through that? How can we live both in that and delight in the law? Well, I think the answer to that is given, at least to some extent, in the wider context of what Psalm 119 is doing. And I think by putting here trust and confidence and in another place lament and complaint, saying, God, I don't understand why is this happening, the psalmist is showing us that As those who are trying to live according to the way that God created the world, according to God's instruction, that we live that out in relationship with Him, with all those different resources of relationship, whether it's complaining to God, whether it's expressing trust in God, whether it is simply praising God because we're at that particular point. The psalmist gives us, I think, the ways in which we can talk to God to keep that relationship alive. Now, that's not actually something that we do terribly well as a church in general. I don't mean this church specifically, but I mean the Western church. Um, We do the expressions of confidence really well. We do the praise and trust really well. But we don't do things like complain. God, I hear these stories about what you did for Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and I've been trusting you, and I haven't seen anything like that deliverance in my life. What's going on? There's a a man called um, uh, Jean Baudrillard, who was a a, a French thinker, and he did some work on uh, what he called um, simulation, the way in which society sort of creates falsehoods and then tries to live by them. And he says this, He says, simulating is not pretending. Whoever fakes an illness can simply stay in bed and make everyone believe he is ill. Whoever simulates an illness produces in himself some of the symptoms. Therefore, pretending leaves the principle of reality intact, whereas simulation threatens the difference between the true and the false, the real and the imaginary. And I think... If this psalmist is indeed giving us the resources for how we might be able to keep our relationship with God intact through all the ambiguities of trying to wed our lives to his way of being in the world, then when we remove one of them, we simply don't use one of them. We're not simply pretending that that's not there. We're actually simulating because the body becomes sick because the speech that would have allowed people the faith of certain people who are at a point where the only thing they can do is cry out and complaint becomes silence. And so the symptom of a broken relationship actually becomes part of the body. It's not just pretense. It actually creates a reality in the body that has a direct impact on the ability of people to see their faith uh, persevere, if you will, through those difficulties. And so I think Psalm 119, not only does it call us to delight 
It alerts us to the ambiguities of following God's instructions, and in doing so, it alerts us to the fact that these are all the things that we might need to say to keep that relationship intact along the way. And so I would challenge you, because one-third of the Psalter is complaint, by the way. One-third of the 150 Psalms is God, hang on, this world isn't working the way that you said it would. Is that a resource that you use for your own life? For your family's spiritual life? For your home group life? For your church life? And if not, I think that silence could be a disease. And I would challenge you to read through the Psalms and see whether perhaps that's something that will keep you talking to God when everything else fails and keep that relationship alive. But, as Christians, we see a fuller reality than the psalmist does, do we not? As Christians, we are set free from the law in all its legal forms so that we can participate in God's life in Jesus Christ. Jesus... When he comes to earth, the Bible tells us, Paul tells us, he becomes a second Adam. He does what Adam couldn't do. He becomes obedient to the point of death on the cross. And in doing so, he takes the place in creation that Adam should have had. And Paul tells us that the law, the, in the sense of the, the legal instructions, not in the sense of the way God made creation, but the particular legal constructions that the Jewish people were bound to, was a schoolmaster. For the failed Adams and Eves in the world, God put this thing in place to sort of contain them a little bit from doing any more damage than they would otherwise do. But Jesus became the second Adam, and he no longer, he doesn't need that. He's above it. He became the one who was at the moral head of the world. And Paul tells us that when we become Christians, we participate in Jesus' life. We too no longer need the law. We no longer need to live under the specific legal institutions of the Jewish people because we too take a place of moral authority in Jesus Christ. Above that, it's an amazing thing. And not just that, but there is the cross and the resurrection. See, in the cross, Jesus dies for our sins. And if we didn't have the resurrection, it would look like judgment upon the created world. The death of the body. God sealing the judgment that he put in Genesis 1 to 3. But there's the resurrection. And what happens in the resurrection? 1 Corinthians 15 tells us that Jesus arises from the dead in a spiritual body. (laughs) A strange thing, a body that has scars and can be recognized and can eat, but that can appear through walls. And in Jesus' ministry, he doesn't just recreate the old created order, but he transforms it into something that we will know in full when he comes and the new heavens and the new earth are brought in. And so as Christians who participate in the life of Christ, our moral life is one that looks both at, yes, the way God created the world and delights in that, 
but also looks forward to what Jesus is going to bring in and so lives in a yet different way. Uh, As an example, in 1 Corinthians 7, the whole thing about singleness as an ethical vocation, well, Paul says marriage is great. There's the old created structure. But Jesus is coming, and when he comes, life's going to be different. And someone who's single now lives in a way that is in anticipation of that. And so the old and the new mixed together, neither one being denied. Um, but, the, but in Christ, we have that exciting and challenging moral duty to try and work out what that means for us to live now. We see this in the Sermon on the Mount. Um, Jesus, in Matthew's Gospel, what does he do? He starts his ministry, he's baptized, just like the people going through the Red Sea. He goes out into the wilderness, just like the Jewish people, to be tempted. And then he goes up a mountain and he gives law to his people, doesn't he? The Sermon on the Mount. But the thing about the Sermon on the Mount is that Jesus changes, internalizes the law. And not only does he change and internalize it, but he points it consistently to himself. Pope John Paul II writes this in Veritatis Splendor. It is Jesus himself who takes the initiative and calls people to follow him. Following Christ is thus the primordial foundation of Christian morality. It is not a matter only of disposing oneself to hear a teaching and obediently accepting a commandment. More radically, it involves holding fast to the very person of Jesus, partaking in his life and destiny, sharing in his free and loving obedience to the will of the Father, When we participate in Jesus, our moral duty is is not to a a set of commandments. When we participate in Jesus, we have the freedom to engage in Jesus' obedience to the Father's will. And through that, to delight in things. Oliver O'Donovan says, Knowledge of the natural order is moral knowledge, and as such is coordinated with obedience. There can be no true knowledge of that order without loving acceptance of it and conforming to it, for it is known by participation and not transcendence. When we participate in Jesus, true knowledge of who Jesus is is the acceptance of his ways, is engaging in his ways and having the opportunity to love and engage in obedience to the will of the Father, both as we see it in his will expressed in creation and in the particular circumstances that we find in our lives. So as Christians, we know God's character. We know the character of creation in a way that is different from what the psalmist did because we know it through his son. But there's still that hiddenness, isn't there? Jesus is the infinite God revealed in a finite form. I mean, think about that. In him, the fullness of God was pleased to dwell bodily. And some people see a man when they look. And some of us have been been given God's grace, and we see a man who is also God. And whose life and teachings are the final revelation of God's character. And that dynamic of hiddenness and Uh, and others not recognizing it, others being jealous of it, others being threatened by it, pervades our lives as Christians also. And so I think, though though the psalmist did not have the um, the full knowledge of God that we have, the resources that he gives us for living, 
a life that is both blessed by following God's Torah and vulnerable still apply to us? His desire that we watch our own ways and the ways of others, that we see the moral life as a learning experience and that we use the resources that He gives us to talk to God to maintain that relationship when the ambiguity becomes almost too much or whether it is so great that we have to express it in praise. But as John Paul said, this is not just about following the external precepts. A guy called Dallas Willard once said that he who tries to fake discipleship through external actions is always eventually overwhelmed by internal realities. How can we get the heart and the action to work together? Well, once again, I think they both are lodged in the person of Christ. And I know for myself that sometimes the action outweighs the heart. And I was thinking this morning, well, what can we do that might help us to try and redress that balance? And I thought, well, the psalmist tells us that the key is to maintain relationship. (laughs) The key is to keep talking. And so the worship team are going to come up and they're going to sing a song about the wonders of what God has done in the world. And my challenge, if you are at all similar to me, would be that you use that opportunity to talk to God about the fact that your heart lags behind your actions, that somehow, like the psalmist, you you need his revelation, his personal transformation, that he would cause the scales of our eyes to fall off and to see the wonder of what he did and the privilege of sharing in the free obedience that he gave to the Father. and the destructiveness of any other option shown to us with all clarity possible. Let me pray. Father, you know that as your people, we, we live a life of ambiguity, both in our internal life um, and, and even when we're obedient, Father. We, we live a life that is vulnerable even when we recognize the blessing. And I pray, Lord, that as we reflect on the fact that you gave us a gift of agency in a creation which is itself made by you who is loving, that you would help us to see that through the work of your Son, Jesus Christ, we have been set free from the sin that would keep us from living life in the way that you would have us and that we would see the great benefit, the blessing that can come into our life when we engage in your free obedience to the Father. God, give us eyes to see and change our hearts because we cannot change them ourselves. In Jesus' name, amen.